Wow. <laughs> Sarah, my TA. <laughs> um, that was quite an, a creative reading. I'm, I'm almost like, okay, now let's discuss this. This is, you know, oh my, hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I'm always honored to um, preach. Um, it's, it's a scary thing. Um, I always, um, my colleagues have heard me say I'm not a preacher, <laughs> um, but I try. And uh, I thank God for the Spirit of God in us, who is the witness uh, present here today. Let's pray. Precious God, wonderful Savior, Dios de bondad, de riqueza, de amor, de paz. I thank you for this opportunity, God, for the presence of your Holy Spirit among us. I thank you, Jesus, that you are Lord above all, that you are God, that you are grace. Thank you for this opportunity, and God, take this word and use it to your will. Empower us, enlighten us. Use us, precious God, according to your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I'd like to also just read from Timothy 1.3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the divine training that is in the faith. Whereas the aim of our charge is love, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make assertions. Amen. Um, for years, I have used the hymn in 1 Timothy 3.16 that we read to talk about the person and work of Christ, or what we call Christology. I find the structure of the text quite intriguing and full of existential meaning. But it never fails that every time I talk about this text, I seem to be more stirred and more charged up by its message and its significance than most of my students. And this always makes me wonder whether I've explained it well enough, whether we're at the point of feeling blasé over what we already know, or whether I'm expecting too much. After all, dancing in the aisles is not part of the student learning objectives, although it would be a most welcome expression should it happen in my class. I'm all for a lively hallelujah conga line. <laughs> A glutton for punishment, I decided to explore the, uh, the text further and preach on it. I don't know what I was thinking. I feel like I need another month, a week, a year to, to really explore this text. Teaching on the passage and preaching from the passage are two very different things, as you all well know. I not only had to contend with the whole of the chapter, but also with what comes before and follows it, and yes, I also have to brace myself for the possibility that none of you may be stirred to speak in tongues or move to dance in the aisles after I've poured out my heart again. Okay, enough of the disclaimer and my own reality check. 
The fact is that the author, believed to be Paul, is writing to young and shy Timothy, encouraging him to instruct certain people to stop teaching a different doctrine than what he has received. He admonishes him to stay the difficult course of correcting those who are likely older and more assertive or even aggressive than he. And I'm sure some of you know or will know what that might feel like. We've all been there at some point. The letter sets out to broadly describe the situation and list some of the principles and instructions for the life and governance of the church. Our particular passage for today follows this very stern, very serious litany about how and from whom to pray. It follows Paul's, not Jesus's, infamous and sorely misinterpreted, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men etc., etc. I really want to say blah, 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 but okay. And it describes the godly behavior expected of overseers and deacons and the household of God. Indeed, it's amidst all of this instruction and admonition about godly attitude and behavior that the writer seems compelled to lighten things up. Um, and, and, and he breaks out, at least it seems to, in what seems to have been part of a well-known hymn about the person and the work of Christ. And in my first reading, it felt to me like I was encountering part of La La Land musical in the midst of a manual on how to use Java computer language for programming, okay? I was left wondering what this Christological hymn is doing here. But then, why shouldn't it be? Is it possible that Paul, overtaken by the knowledge that the only true and living God has deigned the church, God's familia, to be the pillar and ground of truth, makes him break out in praise? After all, as stuffy and somewhat boring and formal as Paul seemed, sorry, Paul, <laughs> Excuse me. We know from the book of Acts that in good and tough situations, even after being beaten and thrown in jail for proclaiming Christ, he always, always found reason to burst out in prayer and allow his soul to sing and dance, dance around the aisles while his wounds still bled and his feet were still shackled to a wall. Could Paul be teaching Timothy to have the same fortitude? While this is possible, the truth seems to go deeper and wider than this. The household of the living God, says Paul, is the pillar and ground of our truth. And if this is so, we need to know, apprehend, and certainly be about that truth. So in not so many words, Paul is telling them, reminding them that they know the truth. They've been confessing it together through song and worship and humming it during their daily work and household chores. Don't be deceived, he warns them. This truth that some seem fit to distort. This truth, this truth is our faith the foundation for who and whose we are and why we need to yearn to live godly lives. You and I can understand the power of song. Tunes are catchy. 
They cling to us like white lint on a navy blue sweater. I've had a song stuck in my head for a couple of weeks now. I really have. I got up with it this morning again, and, and, and it, it's, it's as if this darn song had a will of its own. No matter how hard I'd want to stop remembering, it just pops up unexpectedly. And I think, too, what, what, what that what could be uh, uh, if we put all our learning into song. I bet you would remember most of what you learned and certainly enjoy it a little bit better. So, yes, Paul, without any doubt, without any doubt, he says, the mystery of our religion or godliness is very deep indeed. At least any be deceived by different doctrines, so-called special knowledge or speculative genealogies. Here it is in song. He, the Christ, was revealed in the flesh, vindicated or justified in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. Hallelujah. And this is where I especially get excited, if you didn't notice. For you see, the truth of our faith, our piety, and godliness is not a maxim we can hang on a wall. It's not an aphorism, a proverb, or a cool meme to guide our day. It's not contained in words so that only our minds can understand, nor is it solely apprehended through our senses so that we remain ignorant of its meaning and unable to express its purpose. The mystery of our godliness is indeed very, very deep because it is the person, the man, Jesus, the Christ. Hallelujah. It is God revealed in the flesh. It is, as E. Stanley Jones put it, God's thoughts become available in the most profound expression of love and grace anyone could ever deem imaginable or deserve. Amen. Indeed, the heavens may in fact declare a word about the glory of God, and the firmament does proclaim a word about God's handiwork, but these are only impressions about God, intimation about God's glory and God's power. No amount of eloquence about creation or intellectual gymnastics is capable of capturing the width and the breadth and the reality of the incredible love of God, except, 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 hallelujah, the one who is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, become flesh. Truly, only God can give us God. And so he did through the incarnation all the way to the cross of Calvary. But we can miss the offense in the confession that a perfect, eternal, immortal, invisible God would take on an imperfect, infinite humanity if we don't understand the Hellenist worldview that permeated the philosophies and religious speculations of the day. A strong spirit, material, dualism made sense to them. 
And for instance, as beautiful as the word for Platonist was, the world still was an imperfect reflection of the really real world of forms. You know, you've probably taken this with Joseph. <laughs> Why would a perfect being or mind take on the limits and imperfections of a body? What for? Furthermore, Growing Gnostic spirit, matter, dualist perceptions of the world could not conceive that a spiritually emanated Christ would take on the very flesh they were so desperate to shed. For them, Jesus was a messenger who brought secret knowledge about the way back to their heavenly abode. He himself, however, was not the way, he was not the truth, and he was not the life. And the beauty of what I hear in the section of this hymn that Paul shares is that through Christ, all dualisms between the material and spiritual world are taken up and decimated in the person of Jesus Christ. There are no gods duking it out, no cosmic chaos, hallelujah, to fear. God in Christ has taken our humanity and united it to his divinity. Christ, our head, has closed the gap, as another scholar put it, between deity and humanity, heaven and earth. Can I hear an amen? amen? By his coming, says Paul, Christ has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And what is this gospel? But the good news that Christ was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed so in the world, and taken up in glory so that sinners like you and me can experience the same grace that Paul experienced, overflowing for us with the faith and the love of Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. And this has profound meaning for and about our existence. It presents a reality that is beyond mere materiality or the kind of divine transcendence that turns good Christians into pseudo-deistic existentialists, uh, <laughs> existentialist content to, uh, who are happy and content to know that there is a God, but live as if he takes no active uh, part in the world. And if God is not active in the world, why should they? At the very least, the reality of a Christ in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, preached and believed in the world, and taken up in glory, questions are convenient bifurcations between the secular and the sacred, spirit and body, heaven and earth. If in Christ there is no such duality, what does it mean that to be a steward, not only of myself, hallelujah, what does it mean that we are to be a steward, not only of myself, but also of my community and the rest of the world? What might it mean for us to see the holy in all of God's creation? 
If in Christ there is no duality, is it possible that we are not at liberty to choose who is in God's image and therefore also to whom we want to be Christ-like? If through Christ we become his body, what should our body talk and our body walk, look and sound like to others, to the rest of the world? What does it mean to be the pillar of truth in a world where flags, nationality, wealth, and the pursuit of happiness can trump the gospel truth of a God become flesh to bring life and a new reality to our existence? Paul warned Timothy of false teachers who paid attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. My fear is that there are times when we prefer to be enticed by the voice of these deceitful spirits rather than engage in the harder work of discerning the truth, the truth of our actions and our attitudes. And I also fear that our culture so centered on the self is being taken up into the very fiber of a church that doesn't seem to understand that our egotism shames and hurts the whole household of God and it distorts the gospel it's trying to proclaim. What are we preaching among the nations? Is it Christ? Or is it our brand of Christ? I think that the Brazilian theologian Leonardo Boff describes our problem well. Christ, he says, takes on the cross, the product of human sinfulness, not because it represents a value, but because it allows him to show the radicalness of a love that accepts self-sacrifice rather than break his communion with others even his enemies. Christ, he says, confers value on that which has none and on that which is the embodiment of anti-value. And so we have to ask ourselves, upon what, upon what might we be placing value? Is it wealth? Is it security? Is it our nation? Is it acknowledgement? What, what, what are we placing value on? What, for instance, might it mean to be the church in the United States to live out of this radical love that accepts self-sacrifice rather than break communion with others, even with our enemies? Dare we as a church even endeavor the question, where might it take us? It's scary. Does it take us to be a Timothy or a Paul, beaten and shackled to a wall and then killed? Or maybe to the cross where Christ hung? Scary. While Paul reminds us that we are the bulwark of the faith, he also reminds us that that faith is not a doctrine but the person of God in Christ in the power of the Spirit. Thus our role as pillars is to uphold the gospel, the gospel by way of imitating the Christ. Yes, we are commanded to instruct others in the truth of the gospel, but woe to us when the truth becomes fodder for disputations and schisms rather than the power of God to dare to 
be Christ incarnate. Woe to us because when this happens, we stray from the way, the truth, and the life that is Christ our Lord. And the aim of instruction, Paul reminds us, is love, love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And I confess. I confess that my life, like in my sermon, is only a draft. And I regret, too, that I can't seem to find the words to capture the immense wonder and the emotion that permeates my soul when I think about our God becoming flesh and the intimacy of having his spirit dwell in me and in you and in the rest of the body of Christ across God's good creation. Truly, when it comes to talking about God, our words hide more than they reveal. But how I rejoice that when the time came, God sent his word, Jesus the Christ, to reveal more than we could ever fathom. Christ, Christ is God's thought become available in the most profound expression of love and grace that you and I could ever deserve. And I know, I know that you can't see it, but my soul is dancing through the aisle even as I want to break out in song for the great mystery of our godliness, that Christ is revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up in glory. Praise be to God. Amen.